0: It's Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Kevin McCarthy is out, and it was all orchestrated by this guy, Gates. Well, not just Representative Matt Gates, a true cadre of the heroic. And only when a bright view... Great enemy of chaos, Matt Gates, then plunged the house into leadershiplessness from which any progress seems uncertain. Patrick McHenry will act as leader for a time. But man, did Gates love the moment. The debate was structured so that every Republican member of the House of Representatives had their turn to give reasons to keep McCarthy. That was almost all of them. And then Gates, on behalf of a small handful of like-minded objectors, got to bat back every one of their ideas. So when it was suggested that McCarthy had actually done better than anyone could have expected, Gates said, "I would just say if this House of Representatives has exceeded all expectations, then we definitely need higher expectations." <laughs> and when McCarthy's right-hand man McHenry spoke, Gates zinged him with, "It is lovely to hear from the principal architect of Mr. McCarthy's debt limit deal." Gates's actions were called self-serving. Self-serving. Yeah. Gates had an answer for that. There's nothing selfish about wanting a Speaker of the House who tells the truth. For a fellow who's been credibly accused of seeking attention above all else, it was quite an affirming spectacle. Now, it's not as if Gates had zero good points. I mean, there are many times McCarthy loyalists made actually worse points than Gates did. Here was Louisiana Representative Garrett Graves.
1: If, we're, if they're not going to be there to protect us, next time someone invades America, call a crackhead let me know how that works out for
0: you. Okay. And when Elise Stefaniak talked about all the birthday wishes and condolence calls and niceties that flowed from the Speaker's office, Gates really could have excoriated her and McCarthy. Look, you got the glad hander you want. America demands the public servant it needs. In fact, all he said was, look, it's not personal. But that is clearly how most of the Republicans took it. And how could they not? A slim sliver of their number thwarted what little grip on power they controlled. And now, with the lack of control chaos, you might say, we know just the kind of chaos agent who is feeling quite triumphant. On the show today, California has a new black LGBTQ senator. I guess there were none available in their own state. They had to go to Maryland to find her. But first, as anchor of NPR's Morning Edition, many Americans know the sound of my next guest's voice, the sound that brings them the news of the day. But after the break, I will talk with Steve Inskeep in his capacity as author of Histories. His most recent Differ We Must is about Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. And how he tried to reunite a divided country through talking to people he didn't always agree with. Steve Inskeep up next. Whenever Steve Inskeep writes a book, I say yes. Put him on the show. Jackson Land, I loved Imperfect Union. I'm staring right at it on my desk. His latest book, I'm gonna give you a little asterisk, however, it is about Lincoln. Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. And I said to myself, I'm definitely going to interview Steve. He'll make it interesting. But do we really need another Lincoln book? The answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. Because even though I've read uh, not a thousand, but maybe dozens of Lincoln books, this gave me new perspective. And what Steve Inskeep, the longtime host of Morning Edition, does is he juxtaposes Lincoln with many of his contemporaries, conversations that he had with important people and we get to see Lincoln, and we get to see the entire milieu through a different lens. Really a great technique, a great book. Welcome back to The Gist, Steve. Thank you. It's, it's, it's an honor to be here. Was there one particular meeting that, you, that, that lit the fire of this project?
1: Oh, yes, there was, and it's barely in the book. Hmm. I mean, the idea as it evolved ultimately was Lincoln's meetings with people who differed with him, who disagreed with him, or had a totally different background, or, or whatever, And the one that got me going was a fight that he had as a young man in New Salem, Illinois, when he was in his early 20s. He moved to this rural village, and there was a kind of pack of bullies called the Clary's Grove Boys. And the leader of them, uh, improbably named Jack Armstrong. Jack Armstrong. Like, Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy! Yes. (laughs) Jack Armstrong, who was a bully and like a brutal kind of wrestler challenged him to a wrestling match. Lincoln was good at wrestling, right? Yeah, yeah, it was good wrestling. There are conflicting versions of how it turned out. But one way or another, Lincoln stood his own and proved his manhood. And these guys, the Clary's Grove boys, ended up being his friends and eventually political supporters, even though they differed politically. They were in separate parties, but they liked Abraham Lincoln and he could wrestle.
0: Yeah. Was it the, f- the idea of difference given our times and how hard it is to differ, was that a driving factor? Totally. In fact,
1: I mean, I started with a slightly different concept uh, of linking with a diverse group of people. Because I was thinking about all the different kinds of people in America and how we're kind of clashing together now and I was, I've researched enough about the 19th century to know that it was a diverse country then, even though white men had 99.999% of the power, but like every other kind of person was around. Um, And So that was the start, but I realized that the heart of the story that I wanted to find and to tell was about difference, was about disagreement, was about argument, and how do you get something out of the other person. Um, And I feel that the, the key insight that I've gained is it's not just like, you know, trying to understand the other person or trying necessarily to change their mind. Lincoln didn't always change somebody's mind, but he's like, It's a democracy, I've got to deal with the other person, and so how do I get some value out of my relationship with this person that I disagree with?
0: Do you think he was strategic or just temperamentally interested in understanding others?
1: Yes, (laughs) Um, but definitely strategic. It seems to me that he had a long view and he was very careful about how he spoke which is interesting to think about because he spoke a lot. I mean, he would give a two or three hour speech. He was telling stories all the time. Words were constantly coming out of his mouth. But people who knew him well figured out that he was only saying what he wanted to say. And he would withhold saying things that he thought would be disadvantageous. And often people would come away from a long conversation with him having immensely enjoyed themselves but no idea what he was gonna do next. Um, He was thinking always about the long game. Uh, He had an idea of the world that um, most events, maybe even all events, had been predestined, in a sense. So he was not constantly, you know, uh, flaying around, trying to change little things. He wasn't worried about little things, but he was trying to improve the long-term
0: prospects of himself and the country and humanity as he went. Yeah, we could talk about his focus on the long game in many different contexts, but one is, tell me about, if you will, his stance on laws he must have found odious, but still had to decide as a politician whether to oppose and how forcefully to oppose them, the black laws. Yeah, the black laws. I should define them first,
1: uh, because it's kind of uh, shocking today to think about how pervasive racism was in this country in the 19th century. Uh, Most of us are aware that by the mid-19th century, slavery was practiced in all the states of the South and Northern states had uh, more or less abolished slavery. And I say more or less abolished because there were people grandfathered into slavery, so to speak, for many, many decades. And there were these black laws in a number of states, including Lincoln's Illinois, that were designed to restrict or even eliminate the rights of black people that specifically said only white people may vote. Only white people may testify in court. Only white people may serve on juries, which means, by the way, that if you are a black person and you are a victim of a crime, like you can't even testify against, uh, against your own attacker. Like, like, it's just absurd. Black people had to file evidence that they were free and not escape slaves with the county court. I mean, the black laws went on and on and on, and Lincoln was aware of this, obviously. And Lincoln had black friends who were even more aware of this because they had to live under it in uh, Springfield, Illinois. And I feature as one of the people in the book, William Florville, who was Lincoln's barber, and also uh, Lincoln did law work for him. They were friends. Um, and Florville, even though they're like neighbors and they knew each other's kids and they got along, they were living in these separate legal worlds. And Lincoln in his career as an Illinois politician, 1840s and 50s, never spoke against these black laws. The logic of his speeches shows that they are wrong because he talked about the greatest amount of equality that could be achieved. that was the logic of his speeches. He, But he would say, I'm not impatient about repealing these laws. His goal was to contain slavery. And it was such a desperate effort to build a majority, which is what you gotta do in a democracy, of white voters, which is what almost all the voters were, to oppose slavery that I think he could not, or felt that he could not also have opposed the black laws. He would have lost votes that he wanted
0: against slavery. Right, because his constant tactic was to appeal to the self, self-interest self of white voters. And he thought he could be anti-slavery and achieve... Um, a country that was united first and at least suppress the spread of slavery second by focusing on that he could make good arguments and take good logical stances that would do both those things to appeal to the self-interest of white voters and also to oppose slavery but as you point out time and time again keep the union together yeah
1: yeah that's 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 what he was about uh and one, when I realized this, I mean, I, I didn't come into this book understanding like Lincoln's view of human nature, but uh, when I, I read in, 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 that, 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 that William Herndon, his friend, uh, had quoted him saying that everybody is motivated by self-interest, I began seeing it in his writings again and again, and I even counted in the collected works of Abraham Lincoln, which is a, something I recommend to you, Mike, sometime when you have a month off, because it's like eight volumes you know, uh, yeah. of every word that Lincoln is known to have said or written. Um, I, I went through, fortunately, there's an online database.
0: Uh, is her name Doris
1: Kearns Goodwin? <laughs> exactly. He used the word uh, interest far yeah. more often than words like liberty or freedom or moral. He talked with people about their self-interest, and even when he talked with white voters, about slavery, he framed it in terms of their interests. Slavery is not in your interest as a free person in the free labor market because this enslaved person who is not paid is competing with you. And this enslaved person has a right to be paid for their labor which you understand because you wanna be paid fairly for your labor. Um,
0: And when he framed arguments like that, I think they were powerful. So about the black laws, you write, some of Lincoln's allies followed their convictions to their logical conclusions and tried to have the black laws repealed. Richard Yates, a one time member of Congress, Owen Lovejoy, who you write about in the book, a uh, big abolitionist. But the results were so appalling as to make Lincoln's inaction seem wise. Uh, Yates lost reelection. Um, His allies lost standing in the legislature basically a public stance against these odious laws set back the cause and then I'll give you another I'll quote you to you again. This is you talking about Lincoln's decision about whether to allow black soldiers to serve in the field essentially. The president spoke of politics that caused him to act slowly. He considered the employment of black soldiers an experiment that would b- bring great advantages to black people, but he faced resistance on every detail that might imply their equality with white men. He said that he had difficulty getting colored men into the United States uniform, that when the purpose was fixed to employ them as soldiers, several different uniforms were proposed for them. And it was something gained when it was finally determined to clothe them like other soldiers. This was part of one of the ongoing Lincoln-Douglas debates, not a literal debate, but they were on different sides of this issue. How did Lincoln- The other Douglas.
1: The other Douglas. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. yeah.
0: So how did Lincoln, this is another great example where Lincoln clearly saw what the right thing was to do, but he actually waited, played the long game, bided his time, and put himself in a more advantageous position, even though in the short term, there was some injustice. Just tell me what happened, and then I have a follow-up question.
1: Yeah. I I mean, yeah. I mean, I would even take out the pet. There was injustice in the short term. He was wrong in the short term. His administration was wrong, but he was doing all the right that he thought he could get away with while playing the long game. And that's I want to emphasize this. I don't want to say Lincoln was right to ignore the black laws. I don't want to say Lincoln was right to accept at the beginning that black soldiers in the Civil War were not paid equally with white soldiers, Um, but it was a process. Uh, And he said openly in speeches that Thomas Jefferson's promise in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal was a promise that the founding fathers had obviously failed to live up to, but they did what seemed possible to them at the time. And then the challenge of each succeeding generation was to get a little closer, to approximate that, to use Lincoln's words, all the equality that we could get away with. And that's what he was doing. Part of the process, too, of course, is people who are pointing out that in the short term, Lincoln, you're wrong. And Frederick Douglass was one of them. He was a critic of Lincoln, who became a friend of Lincoln, but was always frank. He was really doing both of those things. He was an ally of Lincoln, and also a kind of loyal opposition, a critic critic of Lincoln, who was calling him out for the times when he was falling short. I mean, there's that line from Martin Luther King about the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. You don't want to lull yourself into a false sense of security that that I can accept this unjust situation because this is all I can do for the moment. You need someone in the equation, probably, to be impatient and to remind you of what you've failed to do. But Lincoln is part of that equation, too, to say, I need to be strategic, I need to be smart, I need to focus on the biggest thing that I can get done over time.
0: He knew where the... He saw where the public would go on fully paying and recognizing black soldiers as soldiers. He also knew that if black soldiers were, you know, slaughtered in the field, that would actually make them seem as all civil war soldiers would be. That would make them seem more sympathetic to the white public. So in a way he sacred. He did in fact sacrifice black soldiers for the long game. That's morally speaking, I'm not gonna say dicey, but it's, it's a tough proposition. But we're talking about the carnage of the Civil War. Well, I'm, I'm
1: a little reluctant to use the word sacrifice. Uh, he welcomed their service and he understood that their service was going to add to Union manpower and the Union manpower advantage that already existed and help them win to, to win the war. And on that point, he had the same view as Frederick Douglass, who in fact came to it earlier saying that black men should serve, yeah. black men should help the cause, and that black men would be fighting for freedom and equality, would be making an argument for their own equality through the act of, of fighting. Um, so while I'm reluctant to endorse that one one word you use, I
0: don't think that Lincoln said,
1: let's go get some men killed and see how it works out. You know? But
0: he knew that, I, what I'm saying is, and this is from your book, he knew that once black soldiers had showed that they had sacrificed and were sacrificing, yeah. that yeah. the public would be won. But if yes, he- that there would, be, there would be less prejudice over time, right. partly
1: because people would know these guys are fighting for the union and they've shown yeah. that whatever people's prejudices were, were wrong.
0: Right. So he knew that they he knew that they would be brave. He knew that many of them, like all Civil War soldiers, would be killed. Would die. He, He still made the calculation. Let's not pay them as much up front until they could prove to people these facts that I know to be true. I agree. It was the wise choice. I don't know that the moral arbiters of today, which is in a time when we're not fighting the Civil War, would possibly allow him to escape with that calculation.
1: Well, I, I can, I can, um, draw a modern parallel. I agree that many people would criticize that. It's kind of, this is complicated to say, like, it should be criticized. Somebody mm-hmm. should say that's wrong. Yes, Somebody's it's a very, u- it
0: Douglas, Frederick Douglass's voice was quite useful. Yeah. Right. You don't put his discussion or difference with D- the Lincoln, Frederick Douglass difference isn't put in the book. So we say, ah, Lincoln was right and Douglas was wrong. Yeah. They helped but each I, other. I would
1: yeah. not be the first person to notice a modern parallel. Not that the issues are exactly the same, but Barack Obama was president of the United States and was not in favor of gay marriage for the first almost four years of his administration, and then decided that he was. Um, Now, I think he described that as a kind of moral evolution as he thought about the topic, but there was also a political evolution happening at the same time. You couldn't be elected in 2008 if you supported gay marriage or it didn't seem that you could. You could be elected in 2012 while in support of gay marriage, and he was. and, and so there are politicians who do this, and some of the best ones, or the most honest ones, are kind of honest about what they're doing. They'll say, you know, I'm doing everything that I can at this moment. Um, you know, if you, if you look at, I don't know, Joe Biden's approach to climate change, another big intractable long-term uh, issue. The uh, bills that were passed in the first two years of his presidency did not do everything that he thinks or that scientists would think is necessary to fight climate change. But they do do everything that Biden and his side of the argument can get away with.
0: Right. Right. But it's very tough because you have the Martin Luther King quote. You have the experience with uh, Joe Biden in the first, well during the Great Recession and how big the bailout package should be and defining what you could get away with a little yep. too parsimoniously. It's all factors in. And, I'll review and it's the, more, yeah. it's morally perilous. I mean, it's, it's, it's something I think you have to
1: be brave to do this uh, because you're going to be critical, but you also have to be somehow self-aware. You have to be, realize what you're doing because there's always the risk that you get trapped and that's why King called it the tranquilizing Uh, drug of gradualism. You don't want to get trapped into just insisting on inequality or unfairness or an inadequate response to a
0: problem. You're right. This is the penultimate paragraph of the book. It was too modest to say he merely responded to necessity. It was better to say he understood the power of circumstance and tried to advance his goals within them. He knew the people he wanted to lead and met them where they were. He spoke of things that mattered to them, nudging just enough people just as far as as they were willing to go, and in my notes on the page, which I only wrote on the page because it was a galley copy and not a hardcover, I wouldn't sell the book like that. I wrote, "Obama and the aircraft carrier." Do you know of that, the metaphor I speak? You better tell me. Well, this was—he said it a couple times. He said it once on Mark Maron's podcast, and I think he was talking about gay marriage, but it could have been—it could have been uh, health care. All I could do as, O captain, my captain of this ship of state is steer it a couple degrees. It's an aircraft carrier. But once I steer it a couple of degrees, it's a pretty mighty ship. And after some time, that will have a huge effect. It could, in fact, turn things around 180 degrees. So I made my Obama comparison as well.
1: No, no I think it's brilliant I just want to stop to like I'm amazed that you got to the next the last paragraph that's really great <laughs> yeah stop there I don't
0: they always say yeah. don't oh, rip don't out don't the, do last the last paragraph. paragraph don't know how it yeah. ends right
1: or are you the kind of person who like reads the last page first so you know how the book ends so I do not although I know okay, I
0: know okay. how it ends and it's in a theater and it's not good though yeah it's not good but I do <laughs> want to emphasize also you're
1: cool to write it's okay to write in the actual book it's uh-huh. uh, right all over the book I I approve
0: of that you probably do as you prep books don't you yeah Steve keep is is the host of NPR's Morning Edition. His past books have included Jackson Land and Imperfect Union. The current one is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been great. Thank you, Mike. And if you like that and think, geez, I could listen to those guys talk for 25 more minutes. Well, guess what? Pesca Plus members get that opportunity. My conversation with Steve continues, and we bring the conversation about Lincoln into this current moment of Americans choosing sides to become a subscriber. Also, to get this entire show without ads, even ads like this one to tell you to subscribe, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and sign up. It just takes a second, and members get longer cuts of interviews every week. Plus, we're going to have a trivia night on October 30th. Ad free membership is also available. It also really helps, very much helps support the gist. That's subscribe.mikepesca.com. Thank you. And now the spiel. LaFonza Butler made history today. ABC Channel 10 Sacramento has details. Butler will
1: be the first openly LGBTQ person to represent California in the Senate,
0: the first black lesbian to openly serve in Congress in U.S. history. When that will happen, meaning when she'll be sworn in, that's this afternoon. It already happened. When was she a lesbian? I don't think that we're going to get into that. However, Barbara Jordan was a black lesbian member of Congress the whole time, apparently. She just didn't discuss it publicly. I've also heard Butler called the first openly lesbian black senator, and I guess that'll be true. But since there have only been two other black female senators, I don't know, maybe Carol Mosley Braun and Kamala Harris could just give the go ahead to drop the openly. Yeah, it's fine, guys. You could just go with lesbian. But, you know, I don't actually. Actually, no, and I don't make presumptions. What I do presume is that by forefronting her achievements and her resume, she headed Emily's list, and by getting into the details of Gavin Newsom's decision to appoint Butler as maybe a caretaker, but maybe not, the media is telling us and the voters of California what we need to know. That's what you do. You report on the new person who wasn't very well publicly known, who's now going to be your U.S. senator. Here's the important things. And it's not that there's a skeleton in LaFonza Butler's closet that anyone's suppressing, but I don't know that we're hearing about one of the, what I judge to be, more salient things about the new senator from California she's not from california not only not from california i mean who in california is from california she doesn't live in california i might have put that closer to the top somewhere i don't know even in front of the recitation of how openly her sexuality is as qualifying her to be a trailblazer or not. So, like I said, it's not that LaFonza Butler has a skeleton in her closet, it's that her closets are in her home in Maryland. In federal filings, Emily's list identified Butler as living in Maryland from September 21 through August 23, the AP reports. A spokesman for Governor Gavin Newsom, Izzy Garden, said that Butler does own a home in California, but she is expected to re register to vote in California before being sworn in. That happened a few hours ago, by the way, the swearing in. I'm not sure about the re-registration. This is all seemingly constitutional, which I guess is the best we could hope these days. Uh, The best modifier, the best adverb to come before constitutional. The Constitution says a person has to be an inhabitant, not a resident of the state they serve. And it allows the Senate itself to define those terms. But just, again, in terms of prioritizing what to tell residents about their representative, she's not a Californian. I say, deserves to be a bit higher. The San Francisco Chronicle did a good job with this, actually. That newspaper is getting better, by the way. I subscribe to the Chronicle, the Sacramento Bee, and the LA Times. I am a little bit nuts. But the San Francisco Chronicle, in my estimation, has decided it needs to stop denying reality to its customer base. There, Emily Hoven, who's the best columnist at the paper since Heather Knight left, writes, quote, So focused was Newsom on Butler's biography that she would be the first black lesbian to serve in Congress in American history and the second black woman to represent California in the Senate that he appears to have deemed insignificant the significant fact that Butler has lived in Maryland since 2021. And to go on to quote Hovind, Newsom seems to have made the bet that Californians would care more about the fact that Butler would be the first openly LGBTQ plus person to represent them in the U.S. Senate than the fact that Butler doesn't currently live in California. Having perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences in the halls of power is, of course, important. Newsom deserves some praise for seeking to elevate the voices of those who traditionally haven't had a seat in Congress, but focusing on demographic characteristics above all else is reductive and leads to tokenization. The LA Times played this story a bit differently. I'll read you some headlines today. Lafonza Butler sworn in as California's newest U.S. Senator. Butler becomes the first out gay person of color to serve in the Senate and the first out LGBTQ plus person to represent California in the chamber. They have a feature. What We Know About LaFonza Butler is the title. Uh, it's a four minute video by their political columnist. Mentioned is the fact that she's a Mississippi native, only 44 years old, was the first woman of color and gay woman to head at Emily's list, but does not mention she doesn't live in California. There's also a column by columnist LZ Granderson Democrats should be putting black women like LaFonza Butler on the ballot. Granterson's a columnist. He can focus on whatever he wants and leave out whatever he wants as long as he's not lying. And he's not lying, but this is what he chooses to highlight. "Quote At the intersection of anti-blackness and misogyny is a mindset in which black women are qualified enough to carry democracy, yet somehow unqualified to earn their place in the nation's highest offices, as if qualifications were the primary barrier. The column does not mention, of course it doesn't mention, oh, also she doesn't live in this state. You will find some coverage in the LA Times of the fact that Butler doesn't live in California, but not in the most prominently placed articles promising to tell you what you need to know. I know this. Butler will serve until a vote is held. The primary is in March, but actually there are two primaries. How it works is like this. Butler or others, may choose to complete Feinstein's term, run for that seat, and that ends at the end of 2024. On that same primary voting day, there will be another election to select who will be the candidates on election day for the full term that starts in January 2025. Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff, they're running for that seat. No one is sure if Butler will run for the full term as well. One tell would be if by the time of the election, she placates certain nagging concerns of voters by actually choosing to reside in their state of California. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca has added to her portfolio as CLO. She is now also CLFAO of Peachfish Productions, Chief Lantern Fly Abatement Officer. Trivia. What daily interdiction has our new CLFAO taken to combat the scourge of lantern flies? Only one is true. Is it A vacuuming up lantern flies from garden plants with a dust buster every day? B smoking lantern flies out with a mesquite blend? C Sending an animal into the garden that houses the lantern flies, scaring the lantern flies off the plants, and then swatting them with an electric tennis racket contraption, or D, burning them with a makeshift flamethrower devised from lighter and Raid flying insect spray. Your guess is at the gist at mikepaskett.com. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash/thegist. Umperuji peru, and thanks for listening.